Be the Earth believes in a world that nurtures all beings. It works by boosting individuals and organisations driving a viable future, connecting funding and investing in regenerative economies that sustain life on Earth. Join this movement by subscribing to their newsletter. Visit BeTheEarth.Foundation. Hello, I'm Kirsty DeGarris, and I'm the new editor of Dumbo Feather magazine. This week, I'm thrilled to introduce a conversation between Barry Liberman and Professor A.C. Grayling. He's Master of the New College of the Humanities and a Fellow at St Anne's College in Oxford. A.C. Grayling has written and edited more than 30 books about philosophy, and he joins us to discuss the big ideas behind his latest book, For the Good of the World, Is Global Agreement on Global Challenges Possible?, published by One World. For the Good of the World is a sobering, fascinating and ultimately hopeful read about the tasks ahead of us as we navigate our future together. Barry spoke to Professor Grayling for issue 70 of the magazine, which explores the theme of a meaningful life. It's a big conversation that examines meaning, the ethical dilemma that we face with the development of sentient AI and a deep examination of Grayling's self-interest law, which you can also read more about in his book. I hope you enjoy the conversation. What an honour to speak with you today. Great pleasure to be with you. I was reading in the news, amongst many things, a Google employee is saying they have created a sentient AI. Did you read that? Not yet, no. And my immediate reaction is to be sceptical, but it will happen at some point, I suppose. If it's true, if you were able to verify that they've done it sooner than we thought, What should we all be feeling about that? Well, we should feel two things. First, we should have some thoughts about how we treat a sentient AI, because any sentient being is worthy of our ethical consideration, because a sentient AI system would not want to be turned off, presumably. And so throwing the switch at the wall plug might be tantamount to a a kind of murder. And so we would have to think about whether we're prepared to do that. So that would be one consideration. Another consideration would be just what is the extent of the powers of a sentient AI? Because any intelligent system which had the power to hack into our nuclear warheads or our energy sources and so on might think to itself, what is the most disruptive and destructive thing on the planet? Answer human beings. (laughs) So it wouldn't take it very long to get rid of us. So that would be a concern. And then we would have to balance the ethical consideration about switching it off and the ethical consideration about it switching us off. Feels like the beginning and the end of this conversation. Does it make you feel anything or do you go straight to the ethical dilemma? You know, in the end, everything comes down to ethical considerations for the following reason. If you think about the etymology of the word ethics, it goes back to an ancient Greek word, ethos, which means character, how things are. And it's not just our individual characters and personalities. But it is how our societies work and it's how we relate to one another in society and therefore how the world is. So ultimately, everything we think about, we think about the environment, we think about all these different technologies and technological developments. We're thinking about how things are and whether on balance they're good rather than bad or not. I sometimes put this argument to people. I say, 
Supposing it's all true, as it most likely is, that the universe began with the Big Bang and it's just the unfolding of physical laws. And then after billions of years, we get the sudden emergence of one little planet, one little solar system and one ordinary galaxy of sentient life, self-reflective, it thinks about things. And then after a while, it snuffs itself out or the sun expands and ends it all. And then the universe continues on its way. So that for the vast majority of the history of the universe, it's completely neutral. There's no good or bad. There's no sentience. There's no nothing. But just for that little moment. Now, if in that little moment, the amount of good, however we understand good, outweighs bad, then that makes the whole history of the universe good. But if the bad outweighs the good in that little moment, then it's a bad thing that there was a universe. So we have a kind of responsibility, (laughs) all of us, to try to make as much good as we can for the sake of the whole history of the universe. Sounds dramatic, but it has the merit of being true. Does that bring you comfort? To some extent it does, yes, because it shows that there is genuine value in striving to do things that are good. And I don't just mean being really nice to people and kind and so on. Of course, that's important because I think kindness is ultimately the fundamental value, you know. But there are other things that are good, like enjoying music or taking a day off, having a holiday, enjoying the sunshine, making something, creating something, writing something. These are all good. So anything that one does that adds to the quantum of good, ultimately, will be for the benefit of the whole universe. And this is a completely secular, atheistical, materialistic kind of view. But it's a good one because it's about the good in all its different forms. I love that we got to something so essential so quickly because there's so much to talk about in the layers of your book. This whole issue of the magazine is actually on a meaningful life. One of the things I wanted to ask you is what brings you meaning and joy, given you often ponder and reflect on these very big things. And I think most people, myself included, I'm living with cognitive dissonance all the time, beautifully expressed in that phrase about wanting to save the world and savor the world. And I live in a quiet pocket at the bottom of the world, but I'm very, very aware of the wicked problems that we face. So I'm curious what brings you meaning and joy. You anticipate by one year the publication of my next book. It's a big, ambitious book, which is called Philosophy and Life, which is about this great question, lives worth living and the meaning of life. If you think about the following very, very extraordinary fact, that in the Renaissance, when people were allowed, again, after the hegemony of the church, to think about things like science and medicine and mathematics and astronomy and history, And they were able to do it in a sort of free kind of way. The very latest research available to them was the literature of classical antiquity, 1,000, 1,500 years before. That was the latest that they had, okay? So it's a really striking thought that, isn't it? Now, even more striking thought is this. Until about 50 years ago, say in the second half of the 20th century, when people thought about ethics, which is about the character, and morals, which is about our duties and relationships, they fundamentally assumed that the religions had the last say or told us how things should be. But with the vanishing away of faith and faith commitments and a more secular world, especially in the developed economies, we've seen coming back into interest the Stoics and the Epicureans, the moral philosophers of the ancient world. So it is as if they are the very, very latest non-religious thinking about ethics and morality. Isn't that astonishing? And that is why you're seeing so many little books about how to be a Stoic and how to benefit from reading Marcus Aurelius and so on. Many of these new discussions are very unsatisfactory. They're very thin. They're very shallow. There's no meat in it. There's no real discussion of things that really matter. 
I'll give you one example. We say we should be stoical, we should be strong. Who are we? Am I a black lesbian woman without a job? No. So when I use the word we, who am I including? How does our different experiences and circumstances, our position in life, in time, in society, how does that affect us? And therefore, how can we think about these issues in ways that will really speak to the core human essentials, given the great turmoil of differences that swamp us? I love what you're referring to, the shallow questions versus the deeper and richer explorations. And that's something that you've spent your whole life doing. It is a learnt skill. What would you advise someone if they wish to live a richer and deeper question of things? Where to start? The place to start is to realise that absolutely everybody has a philosophy of life, but most people don't know they have one. And the one that they don't know they have, they have acquired unconsciously from their society, their parents, their schools, their teachers, and so on. So the very first step is for people to say, what am I doing? Why am I living this way? What am I hoping for? What are my goals? What are my values? And then they may find out that that's fine. They love it. They're a magazine editor. They're enjoying their life. They're battling with interesting problems. You ask what gives meaning. Well, the answer is the struggle to create meaning. That's what gives meaning. The search for it. It's the journey, not the arrival. That old cliche, but it's true. Deeply, deeply true. It's a process. But the process itself is the valuable thing. It is the thing that gives value and meaning. And so the book that I've just read, it begins with that incredible frame about the law of self-interest, which we'll discuss in a moment. But I've been thinking about that so much and referencing it since I read it. I know it's not an old idea, but the way that you frame it is so succinct and remarkable. Before we get there, how do you hold this big moment that we're living in with that almost excitable inquiry? And like you said, how can we all enjoy the journey, not the destination when we're in such a moment of urgency? It's a sense of history, the whole history of humanity so far as we know it, taking us back to about the third or fourth millennium BCE has been a history of continual difficulty, striving, struggle, and many, many episodes where few steps forward of advance have been followed by collapse and a few steps back. There have been several dark ages in human history. We've seen these things again and again. If you have an historical sense, it puts things into context. For us living now, these are bad times. They're very, very bad times. I mean, look at the situation in my country, in the United Kingdom. This country has just collapsed. It is now riddled with all sorts of problems. And you think to yourself, how can this have happened to us? And then you look back at history and you see it's happened any number of times. If we think that we can enter into a phase of peace and tranquility and stability and everything works fine and so on, we're deluding ourselves because to live in society is to be engaged in a continual negotiation, a continual set of seeking compromises. Any society is a collection of minorities and individuals, and they're constantly abrading one another, bumping up against one another and having to negotiate. Life is movement and struggle and difficulty and negotiation. That's just the fact of it. And once one's accepted that and stopped hoping that things will just calm down and stay the same, because to calm down and stay the same is to start slipping back. Once you've accepted that, you recognize that life is the effort. And then one can embrace it and say, okay, let's see if we can't make some things better. If I could make just a few things better, or if I can keep my principles, if I can not just give in, then your life really does begin to have some solid sense of meaning. 
It's so beautiful. Since I've read it, I've been referencing your definition of the self-interest law, which you called Grayling's Law. I'd love to hear you articulate what it is. So it has two forms. One which says that anything that can be done will be done if it brings profit or advantage to whoever can see that it gets done. So even if there were things that people didn't like and wanted to outlaw and so on, there will be people, bad people or rich people or whatever, who will do it anyway. Like, for example, gene editing of fetuses. Very wealthy people or people who have access to the technology might want to make the fetus incredibly healthy, six foot tall, blue eyes, blonde hair, IQ 200, etc. And since this is on track, this can be done with gene editing now, it will be done no matter what we try to do to stop it. The corollary of it is things that can be done won't be done if they bring a cost or a disadvantage to people who can stop it. And the classic recent example of this is Trump, when he was president, withdrawing the United States from the Paris Climate Accords because he was supported by the coal mining industry in the US in his election, and therefore he betrayed the agreement that was reached in 2012 in Paris. So that's an example. It can be done. We can try to limit use of fossil fuels, but it won't happen if people to whom it brings a cost can stop it. I understood human nature to be flawed and messy, but I thought that your self-interest law was so apt at describing something that I almost wouldn't admit to myself. The first part I get, there are so many circumstances where human beings will take advantage for their own benefit. End of story. But that second part took me till now to name all of these good people and not doing what needs to be done because it costs something. I don't really know what to do with that second bit. Well, you see that corollary that what can be done won't be done is the test of altruism, the test of principle, the test of people and societies who are prepared to bear a cost because there is a right thing that should be done. That's the real test. And because there is a high degree of rationality in a lot of self-interest, it's also good, in fact, to be self-interested in the right kind of way. Because as Aristotle said a very long time ago, if you look after yourself, you've got an income and you're staying healthy, then you're not a burden on other people and you're in a position to help other people. But if you don't look after yourself and if you don't have money and you don't have health, then you do become a burden and you're useless to other people. So being self-interested in that rational kind of way is justified. But that means that when people are being genuinely altruistic and genuinely prepared to bear a cost of burden in order to benefit others or to make things better, it gives rise sometimes to suspicion. And we think, what's the agenda? Why are they doing that? There's got to be some hidden reason, some hidden motivation that we're not aware of. Because it is relatively rare to find that. And when we do, and when it is obvious that it is genuine altruism, we are so overwhelmed and we admire it so much that you would think that our admiration would be an impulse to us to be like that, and yet it remains rare. We inflate the story. I am, and many, many people I know, have more than enough. There's a question that we're not answering, which is how much is enough? Because if you were to really ask how much is enough and people really had to answer it, they'd be loath to answer it because the real answer in our world is it's never enough. That is such a good point. You know, it seems that we all know that, and yet somehow we don't put it to work for us, that insight that you've just voiced there, that we can never stop at what we think is enough. We're on the wrong treadmill with the wrong values. We think in society that success is measured mainly by what we have, what we earn, by our assets. You have a house, you have a good income, you have a nice car, you can go on holiday, 
And then you see other people got a bigger house and two cars and more holidays and so on. Of course, the old wisdom that the person is truly wealthy who feels that she has enough. You don't need more. We get seduced in a society that wants us to consume because, of course, our economy depends upon production and consumption. And when you tell people that the biggest growth industry in advanced economies is storage facilities, you realize the insanity of the situation. We've all got so much stuff. Loads of people have to rent storage space to put some of the stuff in. There's so many layers here, and I think we could stay on the self-interest principle for an entire semester. It comes down, therefore, to who's going to pay for it. These costs, these environmental costs, these national costs, is it the wealthy countries, is it the poorer countries, is it me in Australia, you in the UK, the Americans? That's what Trump was doing. He's saying we're not paying for it. But if we take it down to the individual, that which can be done, won't be done by those who can, it's also a false sense of what is risk. We're not correctly assessing risk. How do we break the illusion of the things that we're talking about? How do you say to people, well, no, the real risk is externalised, not the construct? You talk about layers of things here, the way that risk affects us in life, the risk to our planet, the risk to our society, to our institutions, the risk to us individually, all the very different kinds of risks. And we are sometimes made to think, to feel, not always wrongly, that we are, each of us individually, only a paper-thin distance away from some risk. If you lost your job, for example, in a recession, in a downturn, when unemployment is very high, suddenly you move from one zone of being into another zone of being, a whole lot of different problems. To be poor in a rich country is much harder than being poor in a poor country. Because when you're poor in a rich country, you are rich in debt. You are rich in obligations. So the risk of becoming poor in a rich country is one that frightens people into keeping on the treadmill, keeping on consuming, keeping on staying in that job. Do you think the same is true for rich people in rich countries, that they're still coming from that place? Well, it depends what you mean by rich, because that also is a relative notion. And here, I think that's a tremendously important point to make, which is that many, many, many people now are millionaires. If you think about the house you own, the car you own, savings you've got and you factor in your income. There are a hell of a lot of people who are worth a million bucks. There's no problem being a millionaire. But there are also loads of people who are billionaires. And that's a whole different ballgame. That really is rich. And you can see the difference in the following way. A million seconds is two weeks. A billion seconds is 32 years. So to be a billionaire is a really, really different thing from being a millionaire. Now, less 10% of the world population owns 76% of the world's wealth. The bottom 50% of the world population between them own 2% of the world's wealth. You asked the question at the start of this bit, who's paying? The answer is the poor are paying. The whole world system is constructed in such a way that money, assets, wealth in general, and wealth, of course, includes things like health, education, opportunities, and so on, is being siphoned from the poor to the rich. I'm not speaking here as somebody who thinks that being rich is intrinsically a bad thing. It'd be great if we were all rich, if that were possible, but not at the expense of so many people being poor. If we get back to the law of self-interest, it does feel like an impossible tide of individual decisions will overwhelm the good of the whole. Scare stories have the effect of turning attention off rather than heightening awareness. 
so much is asking us to shut down right now. And we need to double down and care more than ever and lean into that good future society more, even though the odds are against us. Yeah. The more worry is expressed by scientists and climatologists and so on about the catastrophe which is zooming towards us, the more people switch off and glaze over because they just don't want to hear. And go back and rummage around in history and ask, when is it and what was it that made huge numbers of people get out on the streets and raise the barricades and have a revolution, really do stuff? Answer is, wasn't argument, it wasn't reasoning, it was emotion, it was what people felt. And that's what spurred them into action. The Hitlers and the Stalins and the Mussolinis and people like that and the Mao Zedongs, they knew that to mobilize people, they've got to get hold of their emotions. They've got to make them fear something and want something. Blame somebody, have an enemy, get people angry about it, get people fearful about it or on the basis of that fear and anger to get them to move. Get them past the bit where the fear makes them glaze over and paralyzes them to the point where they will rise up. We need to find a way to reach out and engage what people really feel. We've got to find the stories, the narratives, the examples that will really strike people. I had a friend who was an expert on water. He asked me the following question. He said, how much of the fresh water consumed in the United Kingdom is imported? So immediately I thought, oh, you mean like in bottles? He said, no, no, just fresh water in general. So I thought, well, it can't be very much. I mean, it rains and, you know, there are rivers and reservoirs and stuff. And he said over 75% of the fresh water consumed in the United Kingdom is imported in the form of fresh fruit and vegetables grown in countries with water shortages. And then we fly them to keep them fresh into the UK. So we are importing water from water-stressed countries and additionally polluting the environment by flying them in. So our system is the embodiment, the institutionalization of complete insanity. When you tell people that, it makes them sit up, open their mouths. And now that's the impact that you want to have. We make people think, wow, really? God, that's the moment where you get that shift of emotion. And you get that shift of emotion on really important things, like the climate problem, it makes them want to know more and to understand better in order to know how to cope with it and know what response to have to it. So if we think about the importing of water and the insanity in the system's design, we're all in it now and we have to unravel what we can in the time that we have while we're here and remake the world if we're going to navigate everything from sentient AI to the environmental multipolar traps that we're in. What kind of an economy do you envisage that decouples growth from it? Is that a thing that you think we can do? And what would that world look like? The decoupling agenda, which of course is what they're trying to do under Biden in the United States by saying we can continue to have growth and so on. But what we have to do is we have to make sure that growth happens in ways that are sustainable. We would undermine the anti-poverty endeavor if we were to try to just stop consumption We have to try to shift to renewables and to sustainability. We are trying to rebuild our ship at sea. Therefore, it has to be done bit by bit. You know, we can't sink ourselves. We can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good or even just of the better. We have to make serious adjustments, incremental in some cases, bold in others. There are certain things that really do need a bold endeavor. And one of them is the shift from fossil fuels to renewables, which requires the international community to put itself on a war footing. 
in a time of war, an entire national economy can be re-geared to producing armaments and to training military personnel and so on, because it's a time of drastic emergency. The world is facing a drastic emergency here, and the world economy should be putting itself on a war footing to change to renewables. And by the way, the argument that I put in the book is that this could happen even if just the G7 economies, if they really, in a concerted way, got together and did this, they could have a massive impact on the way that this situation is unfolding. There's a very good example here, which is the EU. Now, I'm a passionate admirer of the EU. For all its flaws, it's a work in progress. I think it's a marvelous project for peace, for progress, for unity, cooperation. It sets a wonderful example about how our world should be. Now, the EU, by its very existence, has already changed the world for the better in one significant respect, which is this. You cannot trade with the EU unless you meet its quality standards for your industrial products and your agricultural products. So the EU has already raised standards all around the world in manufactured goods and in agricultural practices. And that's remarkable. Here's a group of countries, wealthy, advanced economies, and they have had this big impact on the world as a whole. It's interesting the way that you are talking about your passion for the EU and that project. In the time since you published For the Good of the World, Russia has invaded the Ukraine. China is beating the drums of war in the Asia-Pacific It feels like an enactment of your conclusion that reality will impose a greater and perhaps fatal cost for humanity. You were born at the end of two world wars and a depression. The other side of that, you lived that outcome. And so I can understand why you think the EU is a really great idea. The unification of us, the coming together of us, the alignment of our values, but also the outcomes for all of our countries. How do you think we talk intergenerationally? Because I feel like the more proximate you are to suffering and the more proximate you are to historical outcomes, if you know, you will do everything you can to avoid it. And it feels like my generation and younger have forgotten really quickly. Yeah, it's a good point because the kind of progressive things that happen in the world, like, for example, formation of the United Nations and the UN Declaration of Human Rights in the years immediately after 1945, was because people had before their eyes the destroyed cities, the millions of refugees, the suffering, the grief they felt for people they'd lost in the war. How quickly people forget. People get immersed in the here and now. The self-interest law kicks in. All their best intentions are a barrier doing the right thing bears a cost and therefore it becomes an inconvenience. Go back to that point about engaging people's feelings, engaging people's emotions about things. That's why in the book I describe as examples at the granular level of what happens to individuals in times of flood or wildfire. Women, for example, in the poor South who don't know to swim, who wear clothes that will drown them if they get caught in a flood who are responsible for finding food and drink for children and elderly people and sick people, they are the ones who immediately bear the impact. This is half the world's population who are not thought of when people think about how they're going to manage and mitigate disaster. Personally, I think the Extinction Rebellion young people are wonderful. I'm a big fan of Greta Thunberg. I think she's marvellous. Because, I mean, really, to stand up and speak your mind to all the people in their grey suits who pretend that they care but who don't do anything, that is admirable. Yeah, she's remarkable. I just want to stay on this intergenerational conversation for a moment because I know you will have amazing thoughts on this, but how do we test our ethics against our own puritanism or fundamentalism? Because I feel like now in the panic of this moment, 
Some things I think are unethical are creeping into movements I was aligned with previously, like even the Extinction Rebellion movement. There's this panicked fundamentalist positioning on either side of politics, and I don't feel allegiance with either. So how do we test our ethics? How do we test if we've gone too far with a pure idea and we've lost our humanity? You put your finger on the dilemma, which is that if those who are in a position to make a difference don't do anything to make a difference, they drive their opposition into more and more and more extreme expedience. Extinction Rebellion is the young talking to the older generations in a language that they, the young, think that the older generations are alone capable of understanding. Because if they won't listen to reason, then you become more and more extreme, and then you do extreme things. And of course, that can be very counterproductive. There could be a big blowback, and what it is that Extinction Rebellion is trying to do can be undermined by its own activism. That's true. But they've been driven to it. Think of the example of the United States at the moment and the political discourse there. Because of the binary nature of American politics as a result of its system, you've got a bitter civil war going on between Democrats and Republicans. It's very divisive and paralyzing and incredibly bad for the country. But this is the outcome of all forms of polarization. The people get driven more and more and more to extreme expedience. And then, of course, the people who say, look, we've got to find some rational way. Let's see if there's a compromise. Let's see if there's a solution. Let's see if there is a path. Bearing in mind that there are some things that you cannot compromise with. You can't compromise with a bushfire. You can't compromise with a dying barrier reef. How do we stay out of that binary positioning? It's a continual effort because if you stop paddling, you just sink down into the ocean. Not fighting, not continuing the struggle is the same thing as giving up. There's no position where you're just floating comfortably in the situation. You've got to keep saying to the people on both extremes, you're being extreme. And you've got to say, there are some facts here which are absolutely obdurate. They're granite. There's no compromising with the fact that climate change is happening. Warming is happening. It's going to continue to warm for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. We can't stop it. So we've got to mitigate it if we can. And we've got to adapt to it wherever we can. Because we are bequeathing a world to our children, grandchildren, where they're going to have fewer resources to deal with bigger problems than we have. And that is a very immoral thing to be doing, to be shifting the burden on to people who don't even exist yet and who come into the world unprepared for it. I'm going to sit with the self-interest principle for a long time. It's been really helpful for me. I guess one of the last things I wanted to ask was when you go to write a book like this, which is Global Agreement on Global Challenges and for the Good of the World, it's such a beautiful proposition. Who do you write it for? Who are you thinking of when you write it? I think that there are like-minded people. There are people who have the interest and the concerns and capacity to follow a line of argument and reaching out to them, conversing with them. I've always thought that those of us who have this amazing privilege, amazing opportunity to spend our lives thinking about philosophical things and ethics and the world, we should see it as a kind of duty in a way to contribute to the conversation. We're not in a position and shouldn't think we're in a position to legislate, tell people what to think but to sort of help the conversation along by putting forward a case, making a case and seeing whether it persuades and listening to the answers. All around the world, there is a global community, a global family of people who might pick up a book like this and read it, who might talk to one to other people, might find something in it that they could pass on. 
I was once signing books in a queue at a literary festival, and somebody came up to me and said, you agree with everything I think. And I thought, that's absolutely wonderful. I love that. And I thought exactly the same thing last week at the Hay Literary Festival, because the celebrity visitor at the Hay Literary Festival was Hillary Clinton. She's very on the ball, very cogent. She's much further to the left than you would think from what you heard in the 2016 election. And she's principled. Afterwards, a group of us had dinner with her. And I was thinking to myself as the dinner unfolded, she agrees with everything, I think. (laughs) But it gives you an indication of the fact that there is this family of us who are concerned about these things and who want to try to explore ways of thinking about it and dealing with it. I love it. Thank you so much, Professor Grayling, because I think I sometimes lose faith. Do you ever lose faith? No, because it's not an option. You've got to keep going and hope that if you can do something, if you can put another grain of sand onto the pile, that would have been worthwhile. Thank you for your company on the Dumbo Feather podcast, where we speak with extraordinary people who are building a hopeful future. A.C. Grayling's latest book is For the Good of the World. Is global agreement on global challenges possible? And it's available from your favourite indie bookseller. You'll find an edited version of this conversation in issue 70 of Dumbo Feather, and it's out today. If you're interested in becoming a subscriber to Dumbo Feather, please visit dumbofeather.com forward slash subscribe. We deliver worldwide. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the Dumbo Feather podcast. Impact Investments and Philanthropy, for a world that nurtures all beings. Be the Earth Foundation. Visit be the earth.foundation and subscribe to their newsletter.